Today on the podcast, I want to talk about things that are changing in sports that we may not like, but might be the right things. Also, Adnan and Ver, we're going to talk a little baseball midway point, but probably more importantly, Matthew Good being snubbed from an Emmy nomination for his work in the offer and life advice. A couple updates. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever. For the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. You know that I've talked about college football realignment, expansion, mutiny, uh, however, however you want to describe it. And you know that I'm, I'm just not changing my mind on this one, right? I'm not. Uh, when I look at people that do like it, maybe I should describe that as a combination of like or indifference. It's usually Big Ten or SEC fans that are like, man, we're cool. I don't have to worry about it. Um, and it makes sense because a lot of our opinions can be, whether we admit it or not, selfishly motivated. Um, but we are, I believe, as I'm going to run through a bunch of stuff here, I think we're at the beginning. I don't know what the timeline of this is, but I think we are at the beginning stages of unprecedented change in sports. All the things that we care about, pro sports leagues, players, all of this stuff. Uh, I don't know what's going to change, but it's going to be challenged. It's going to be challenged in ways we've never seen before. I started thinking about live golf. I'm not your golf guy. You don't come here for golf. Um, but live, by the way, room and numeral for 54, which would be a birdie on every hole of a par 72. Uh, it's backed by a sovereign wealth fund by the Saudis. Uh, Saudi involvement, you could say for live golf is problematic, or you could say, Hey, it's actually not problematic at all, considering their track record of human rights violations. Um, but this is their investment and they're starting their own tour and the money's insane and it's a problem for the PGA. And if you are in the golf world, it is a daily headline. Uh, Phil Mickelson in his book actually called the Saudis quote, scary motherfuckers to get involved with. He then signed a contract with them for $200 million. Uh, I'm not sure that I entirely get the financial model of Live Golf. Uh, it feels like quite a cash burn with these huge bonuses and contracts for a handful of PGA Tour members, um, the purses, the reported purses. So I don't know what the financial model is here. Maybe it's the next new app where they just burn cash, keep telling everybody they're going to make money. But if somebody can cover the cash burn, it would be this kind of fun to do it. Now, if you're looking at this entirely from a golf perspective, you're you're an American. You like the PGA Tour. That's your Sunday. Uh, you probably don't like this because it's messing with your golf. You're like, I just want all the best golfers to be on the same tour, and that's what I want to watch. I don't I don't want like this separate thing. Um, 
I also think that there's another layer to this when you look at the Saudi angle that you could probably, not to say that it's apples to apples, but you could probably find some relationship on a business level of some league or maybe even star player that has something where you're like, yeah, maybe that's not great. Um, does that make it right? No, but it makes the conversation a little bit more real. And that's why I'm not going to derail all of this by heading down that road. The U.S. Department of Justice is now investigating the PGA Tour for, quote, potential anti-competitive behavior. So what's right? Is it right for the tour to mess with PGA players saying, all right, you're ineligible for our tour. You can't play in our events. Um, I was reading something yesterday that talked about how the Department of Justice is investigating and hoping to get like guys off the record tour members uh, and asking them, like, what kind of way has the PGA try to mess with you? And I think some people would look at this and say, well, that's right. Like they're protecting their product. But is it? Especially when we're not even talking about team sports here. We're talking about individuals, individuals who are among the greatest to do what it is that they do. So if you remove the backing part of it, say this were a Swiss tour, right? Switzerland. Like, hey, we get a fun. We, we fucking love golf. Did you guys know that? All right, we're starting our own tour. We're raising the stakes, bigger purses, bigger bonuses up front. It messes with your product. It messes with your Sunday if you're a fan of golf. So you may not like it, but does that mean it's right? Probably not. We have a ton of examples of this in American sports. Is a salary cap right? No. <laughs> Imagine telling the owners, like, yeah, this is, you can only make this much when you sell your team. It's not this exactly, the, you know, it's not exactly the same thing, but the, the theory, the capitalist theory of the entire thing is like, wait, so I'm LeBron James. I'm one of the best people in the world, maybe the second best person in the history of the planet to ever do what it is that I do. And the most I'll ever make in a year is $45 million, which is what he's under contract for this next year. If he gets some kind of extension, he's going to make more than that. Uh, he's going to clear over $430 million, I think, in career earnings. The simple answer to that would be like, dude, $45 million, that's a ton, $400 plus million. But that's not really the point. The point is, is that he works in a business where there's a mechanism in place that says you can only make this much, even though you are this special. If there were no salary cap, what would LeBron James make? And that's kind of what we're looking at here with golf. Again, not the same thing because these are individuals who can go and take their skills almost as mercenaries and go out there and make money where the team sport, the structure of an entire league makes it a little bit more complicated. But I wonder if these things are going to be challenged. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen some attempts at challenging these monopolies, right? The NBA, NFL, not so much with baseball. Um, Whenever I think about reading some of the USFL stuff, Jeff Perlman's book, which is incredible, it was always kind of funny because everybody goes in, like a plan is great on paper until you have to live it. Sam Hinkie is the best example of this. Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to lose all these games. We're going to ask the rookies to sit out. I'm going to have D-League players, not even G-League, D-League players on half the roster, and we're just going to do it for like three years. It'll be cool. Don't worry about it. And it's like, that's awesome. This is amazing. This guy's going for it. He's unapologetically going for it. And then once you're in year two of the plan, you're like, this isn't that much fun, right? Plans are easy to plan, far harder to live with. So when these other leagues will start up like the USFL going back decades, the owners were like, look, let's do this. Let's make sure none of us go overboard. Let's make sure none of us spend too much money. Let's lay a good foundation. Let's stabilize the league. Let's get better TV deals, which by the way, the NFL in their dealings with the networks that gave television rights to the USFL, messed with them later on. 
I mean, it's just in there. All the stuff's in the book. Is that right? No, of course it's not right, but it's business. But then when I think about like the 50-50 revenue splits that we have in professional sports, NFL right now is like 48%. Basketball's 50. At one point, the NFL was 60. Uh, basketball was close to 60 not that long ago. I mean, you had to go back years, but it wasn't like we're talking about the 80s. And when I think about that, it's like we, we just are married to the concept of 50-50 because it just makes so much sense. Like you start a business with somebody, all right, we're going to split all of it 50-50. Does it mean everybody's doing equal amounts of work? Usually not, but it just sounds good. What if a new league just said, you know what? This is about the players. It's not about us. Sure, we're taking on debt and we have to structure all this and there's so much business side of this, but we actually think to be competitive and to lure other players to our league, we're just going to do a 70-30 split. What if we had just had 70-30 revenue splits for players all the time because the owners make so much, the appreciation is so much on the, on the value of the franchise? I'm not saying this will happen, but I think we can at times become married to these outdated things that make us think that we're actually like operating the right way. Now, granted, if you were splitting 70% of the revenue with the players, your franchises would not be worth what the NBA franchises are worth right now. The NFL has a ton of mechanisms that are probably all wrong, but we actually probably like them. When I only cared about the NFL from a fan perspective, well, long before I was in the media, I liked the salary cap. That's cool. Nobody else can spend more than my team. I liked that all the TV money got cut up 32 ways because it's like, this is great. Competitive balance. Everybody has a chance. Franchise tag of my favorite players flirting with free agency. They could just tag him. He can't go anywhere. Non-guaranteed contracts. Awesome because guys get hurt all the time. So I don't want my team stuck with a guy that's hurt making $12 million a year because he has guaranteed contracts. Are any of these things right? Probably not. MLB revenue sharing. It's bullshit. The Orioles, the red hot O's. They have a team payroll entering the 2022 season of 32 million. 32 million? That would have been the fifth lowest baseball payroll in the year 2000. Now, selfishly, if I like a team, I don't know, like the Pirates, like the Hat, if I like a team that isn't that good, doesn't have a great local market, doesn't seem to generate a ton of revenue. I like revenue sharing because I feel like it gives me a chance when in fact it just means that owners are in business with other people that don't care enough about their franchises. Like, cool, you're going to pay for my payroll because I don't make as much as you. I don't know that any of these things are right, but they all exist. The ESL, the European Super League that we were flirting with with soccer a couple of years ago, right? Top 20 teams were like, we're just going to form our own thing. We're not going to share all the money with these lesser clubs. We're going to get a better TV deal. We're just going to go Super League, this whole thing. And guess what that was met with? Massive criticism. Six teams immediately like, we're out. And then I think like another three, and then finally the whole thing was done. We're like, all right, we're going to revisit this and figure it out later. It's probably going to be revisited at some point. But guess what? Everybody hated it, much like I hate college football realignment. Because you're like, why, why do you need to do these things? It's a little different, but it's also just another sign of how unpredictable this stuff is becoming. Now, would it be better if the NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball were all challenged? Selfishly, no. I don't want another fucking league to have to pay attention to. <laughs> but is that right? I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right for the players. I don't think it's right for the employees. When I think about NFL competition, I mean, we just had that AAF, right? We're like, all right, here we go. A week after the Super Bowl. I'm going to see if we get this thing off the ground. It didn't last eight weeks and it went bankrupt. We've seen two versions of the XFL. The point that I'm trying to make here is that we are now at the beginning stages, I believe, of sports being challenged in an unprecedented way. 
We've already seen it with college sports, the NIL. Finally, everybody's like, you know what? Actually, maybe that isn't that bad. It isn't that bad. The transfer rule, right? They finally loosened the restrictions on that, but selfishly looking back on it, it was like, oh, my favorite team has this player and he's really good. I'd like some mechanism to be in place to deter him from maybe transferring to another school, heaven forbid, of school that's within the conference. And now you're like, okay, again, desensitized to a lot of these different things. I don't know if the NBA, MLB, or the NFL are ever going to be challenged the way the PGA Tour has been. But with media rights deals being what they are and thinking about the way that we've just become accustomed to accepting so many things that are probably just fundamentally wrong with just being employed in one of these leagues, uh, a lot of us are probably going to have to come to grips with things that we don't like that are actually probably right. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. We got Adnan Verk. He's a tough get. MLB Network, NHL, Cinephile, terrific podcast. So I actually want to talk the arts as well with Adnan <laughs> before we get to the baseball stuff at the halfway point. Uh, MLB All-Star Weekend out here in Los Angeles. You're not coming though, right? No, I wish I got the call, but I kind of knew I'm not a big enough deal at MLB Network. We got Greg Amsinger, Fran Charles, oh, Robert Flores, MLB Central. So I, I preemptively pulled the, well, I'm going to take family vacation anyway, so that, but I don't feel snubbed. I don't feel like uh, Austin Riley being snubbed here. So family vacation, I've always wanted to go to South Carolina. Our boy Danny Cannell, I believe, if not honeymoon, spent some time in Charleston. Dari Noka, similarly, big Charleston guy. John Skipper, big Charleston guy. I'm going to Charleston. Kids, no interest in Charleston. Four boys. 14, 11, 5, and 3. Dad, what are we going to Charleston for? I'm like, no, no. We want to see the beginning of the Civil War. As a Canadian, I'm fascinated by this war. Fort Sumter, the first shots fired, Confederacy attacks. No interest. Yawn. We're going to see a bunch of cannons. So Charleston for a day, then Hilton had three and a half days of the beach. Have you, as a worldly guy, ever been to Charleston, South Carolina, had any interest in that area? A lot of interest, never been. You've maybe not. <laughs> maybe a lot of interest is, is inaccurate. Interest. <laughs> Just didn't, wasn't in the works. South Carolina wasn't good enough for a college game day. Like, however, it broke down when we were traveling and I was doing all that stuff. It's still one of the four SEC schools, or I guess I should say, well, no, actually, that's right, because I've been to Texas and Oklahoma. So yeah. I think on the new alignment of it, I'll have been to 12 of the 16 SEC campuses, but I, um, South Carolina is one of the ones I haven't been to, which I do. I'd love to check it out. I heard that town's awesome. So good for you. Yusuf will enjoy it. Yes, 14 years old now. He's graduated high school. Unbelievable. Me, he's graduated elementary school. I was going to say, high man, school. high school. That's <laughs> incredible. It's like some of those old military guys that went to Harvard at like 15. I was like, this well, will be inspirational. I could use a little impromptu life advice because he's going to high school in the fall and wants to play football. And I'm like, buddy, no, I've never let him play football. Very cautious father. He's like, all right. So he's doing a mini camp right now. The coach assured me no tackling. You know, they've got hats, excuse me, helmets, but no chin guards. What would you do? Ryan Russell, as a father, would you let your son play football? I Yeah, I think I think I would. Um, but, I, you know, is he into it? Like, there's two He's different mentalities it. where, you know, you, you either like hitting people or you can't stand people hitting you. And mm. I think it separates people pretty quickly 
And that's the thing I would always worry. Like if my son looked like somebody who liked the contact, I'd feel better about that versus the, you know, a lot of guys would be like, they think they like it. And then they're like, you know what? This isn't that fucking great. <laughs> so he's tall and wiry. Like there's not much girth there. I'm like, buddy, the first time you get your bell wrong, you're going to realize this isn't fun. Like you have to enjoy the violence as Dick Butkus once said. So I think we're going to yeah. answer pretty quickly. No, I look, I remember in a kickoff return, I brought it up the right sideline and I ended up all of my limbs in the bottom rows of a bleacher. <laughs> like, you know, those old like youth parks. And so nobody was even sitting in it. It was like rusty. It was turned the wrong way. Right. And I don't even know what happened. Like, I was like, I'm going, this is six. And then somebody got me <laughs> and I remember being tangled. Like people had to come help me get my limbs out of the bottom rows. Right. And I remember being like, whoa and then the other guy the other kickoff returner was just as horrified as i was because right. then he would look to me and be like yours yours <laughs> <laughs> and so then the coach is like i got two pussies back here <laughs> kick return <laughs> and, you know we're young we're really young and i'm i'm like man i'm just i'm just wiry dude i don't know what the to best tell you is none of these guys look like they should be playing any position so the guy's sizing abusive he's taller than me i'm five eight he's probably five nine now but he's like well, he's a buck 50 he's like all right you'll be our linebacker i'm like what How, what are you ray lewis in this team you should not be a linebacker you're maybe a running back maybe a corner like they've got some five six heavy set guys in offensive blockmen. i go i think just because he's short and fat i don't know if he knows how to block i just think they're coming to freshman team what can you get but i don't know it could be dicey all right. Well, I'm I'm for it. I'm for it. But okay. I think you'll know right this problem may solve itself. That's why I like the idea of camp. Hey, let's just figure yeah. it out. First thing you get your bell rung. Oh, you know what? Regular season coach ain't gonna happen. Thanks. It was yeah. fun. Okay. All right, good life advice. I'm not even gonna start with the baseball. I'm so upset <laughs> right now. I'm so upset. Um so the offer is a television show on Paramount Plus. You can check it out. It is a good watch. I think that's the best I, I it's not the best TV show you're ever gonna see. It's a good watch. I enjoyed it. I think you had an unbelievable description of the OJ series um, when that came out. Do you remember what you said? You were like, I can't tell if it's a... Yeah, I remember the line list that you liked was about Travolta. I said, I can't tell if it's a great actor giving a bad performance or a bad actor giving a great performance. But either way, it's riveting. And I couldn't (laughs) stop watching it. I think I've watched that series a second time. I think I got stuck somewhere in a hotel for a while. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw it on. And you just put it on. You're packing up your clothes. It's sort of in the background. It's one of those shows. The offer is the story of making the Godfather, which there's a book out. Al Ruddy's played by Miles Teller. Uh, Teller in this show basically has to play the straight man, which is good. It's a leading role. He does a great job with it, but it doesn't allow him to explore the space like some of the other actors because some of the performances are over the top. You could say some are a little bit too much. Um, But what I what we both agree on is the Emmy nominations came out yesterday is Matthew Good playing the legendary Paramount producer, the head of the studio, Robert Evans. The character, this is one of the best characters I've ever seen in the history of television. His performance is that good. You are He steals every scene. I've gone back and just watched his scenes. I didn't know who Matthew Good was a little <laughs> bit. You know, yeah. like I remember him from Imitation Game. I'm debating watching Leap Year just because of him. I listened to his Vanity Fair podcast. I went and read the Robert Evans biography within it a week. It stays in the picture. Love that. Dude, that book, yeah. it could end. I've never read a biography where after 30 pages, he's like, well, I used to sleep with showgirls when I was in high school. He's like, and then I ended up becoming best friends with Errol Flynn. And then I had to leave Cuba because of the mob. You're 30 pages in. That's 30 pages in and it could be done. 
and you'd be like, you know what? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I know I rambled here forever. He wasn't nominated. I don't know if you feel the same way about me, but I was incredibly disappointed because I do think it's that special. What he did impersonating and playing this character and the depth, it wasn't just an impersonation for nine episodes. He was all over the place. So there is my opening salvo. I love it. Every year when the nominations come out, there's always the one nomination I'd like to see happen and then I don't think it's going to happen. And Scott Feinberg does an unbelievable job, The Hollywood Reporter. And I checked his preview and he said, Matthew Good is probably not going to get it. He says on the outside looking in and you and I were like, what? That's a no doubt nomination. I would think for sure. Limited series. I think he's a supporting actor, even though Robert Evans was such a larger than life character and he has so much screen time. You could have nominated him as a lead actor, but regardless, I think they put him as a supporting actor because like you said, our buddy Miles Teller is, is ostensibly the lead of the show. Although I agree with you on Miles. He's a great actor and a great guy. But that show, he's, he's the straight man. He's a very sturdy kind of lead role. Mr. Fix-It, Al Ruddy. Evans, you know, Matthew Good particularly, gets a lot of room to shine. And the guy playing Mario Puzo, uh, Coppola, all those guys are, like you said, more colorful characters. What I found fascinating is this. Dexter Fletcher, who is one of the executive producers of The Offer and directed the first two episodes, I had him on Cinephile. And like you, I raved about Good. And he goes, well, here's the crazy part. He said, most of the show was already cast. By the time Matthew hopped in, he goes, we had a Hollywood actor who was, you know, attached to the project and then dropped out. And we had to quickly scramble. And Matthew Good said, yes. Now, this is a British guy. Like you said, I don't really know his work that well. My wife's like, oh, I love him. He's in Downton Abbey and other stuff that you and I wouldn't watch. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he's phenomenal. I think he was in the Queen's Gambit as well. And the way that Dexter told it was he just hopped on the train that was already moving. Like he had to quickly find out who is Robert Evans. He was, he had no idea. Like most actors would have an idea of who this guy is. He goes, Good's like, no, I'm British. I know who he is. Oh, okay. He produced The Godfather and, like I said, the studio head of Love Story and Chinatown, all those great 70s films. So he said he started listing the audiobook of The Kid Stays in the Picture and said, okay, this is helpful, but it's an old man looking back at his life. I need to find Robert Evans at that time, 1972, 50 years ago. So he said he started looking on YouTube, looking at clips. And um, I think of Olivier one time when he said, you're, you're doing a performance. Sometimes you go from the outside in. You know, method acting is in. Larry? Right, Brandon. Uh, Larry Olivier, he said, he goes, you go outside in. A famous example of that, Anthony Hopkins and Nixon, which you and I have never talked about, but, it, but it's a great performance because you think, well, there's no way Anthony Hopkins, Welsh actor, can play quintessential American. I am not a crook Richard Nixon, but it's amazing. He goes outside in. You get the facial gestures, you get the look, and eventually you go, hey, you know, he's kind of like Nixon. So similarly with Matthew Good and Robert Evans, you're right. You, it could go wrong in so many ways because he's such a juicy character to play from the permatan to the glasses to the accent. Hey, Bubby, you know, the fact he's always sipping on a martini and having a smoke. I mean, this could very quickly veer into parody. Like this seems like an SNL sketch waiting to happen. But I think that's the greatness of good is originally, at least early on, it seems like kind of a goofy character. He's a little bit, like we said, larger than life. But by episode four or five, you really kind of settle into a groove of the character. By the end, you're generally moved by it. And I remember if you asked me, I remember from the kid stays in the picture, the book and the movie was how heartbroken this guy was when she left him, when Allie left him and she left him for Steve McQueen. And this guy was genuinely heartbroken about it. And he was a true ladies' man. He was a, a raconteur, as you and I might say, of a different era. Just an incredible storyteller. I remember I just read this, I read this book about Chinatown, which is awesome, which you would love. Robert Evans had something like 14 telephones in his house. Because this was obviously well before cell phones and stuff. And he always wanted to be on the phone making deals happen. So if you picture Robert Evans in the offer, that's exactly what it was. The satin, silk robe on the phone, dart. And he's got a martini making deals. But... The only thing I'll say about the offer is this, and you and I had some quibbles with it. I thought it was a little too long, a little too cute for its own good. You know, cannoli line, uh, Apollonia, we're setting the days of the week. I'm like, I got, I got it. Like, there's, there's enough winking nods here to all the Godfather fans. I'm like, all right. 
it kind of makes Al Ruddy look like he did everything. <laughs> like Coppola gets zero credit. Robert Evans gets zero credit. He's just heartbroken the whole time. Like, wait, this was a more collaborative process. But in fairness to the offer, Al Ruddy probably never has gotten his due. It's always the stories, Brando and Pacino and Coppola and Evans. So, you know, hey, Al Ruddy does his producer. He gets some love here, which is, which is certainly notable. But I thought that at times they made Evans look like it was just too hopeless that he wasn't able to get things done. Now, famously, did not want to cast Pacino. That is true. He's like, no way. I don't want this midget in the movie. Uh, that was his words. And he wanted uh, Ryan O'Neill, who he had cast from Love Story. He wanted Robert Redford. He said he could have a Northern Italian. But Evans was a brilliant guy. I mean, Chinatown's an incredible film. I know you and I agree on that. It is not only impactful and still resonant today, but Love Story is one of those big, sopping melodramas. So super smart guy. I don't like Love Story, so we could just put that one to bed. Yeah, like, Love I wouldn't have liked. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. have liked that then. I wouldn't like it now. <laughs> it's schmaltz. It is um, schmaltz. And then the Ryan O'Neill part of that, when you find out later on, like Ali McGraw is starring in this movie. Evans yeah. is married to her. They they stick up for O'Neill. The the other people above, basically it's Gulf and Western and these other people telling Bob Evans, like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this the whole time. And he really did have kind of an artist eye of it because the yeah. craziest thing, and we're talking about Evans here, which is fine, which is kind of what I wanted to do. This is somebody that was running around New York City as a kid, and his father's this like brilliant piano player, but he's a dentist, and they're doing all right. But his dreams or his father's dreams are thwarted because you know he's supporting a family here, and Bob Evans is this kid who just apparently has all the angles at a very young age, and he's incredible with women. You know, and he's yeah. not. And the thing is, is in the book. Like, I remember reading the Anthony Kiedis biography, and I'd be like, oh, cool. You got laid. You're the fucking lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right. All right. Love Evans, sex magic. I got it. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. They loved you on the road, did they? Um, <laughs> Evans, in his book, is so delicate about essentially his womanizing, but it's almost classy. <laughs> In the way he just like he because he's of like, that era, the Dean Martinless and Oscar yeah, guys. It's, when it's, it was just a cool thing to do. Yeah, and and here he is. He's like a teenager, and he's going around town doing like he's radio acting. He's he's yeah. basically an actor reading these lines, and then he's a he's a really good looking guy, uh, yeah. which certainly helped. And then he's involved with women's clothing because his brother starts a fucking company where they're trying to make the suit pant like a normal thing and the company starts blowing up and he's this really good looking guy at a pool in Beverly Hills at a hotel and he's yeah. on the phone and this woman who is married to this legendary producer actor, I believe, right? Like discovers yeah. him and she's like, who are you? You're not an actor. And he's like, I am Bob Evans. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> and then she's like, casts him and he's in, and he's in Hemingway's the sun also rises and he's playing a bullfighter and yeah. nobody wants him in the movie. Right. Nobody. Ava Gardner writes a letter to the studio being like, get this schmuck out of here. And he sits in front of the partnership of the producer, the two people that did want him in. And they're like, all right, show us as a bullfighter. And he's yeah. like dancing around. I guess he was a good dancer too. And he's, and they go, the kid stays in the picture. Yes. <laughs> all right. And then I think he's dating Ava Gardner six months later. Right. I think right. that's to believe because he kind of casually writes. And then six months later, we're hanging out. Have, this man's story, and then the fact that like all these other actors, like Errol Flynn, he has the line in there. He's like, you don't want to talk to Errol Flynn after two p.m. because it just he was going to be drunk. Um, and <laughs> He's then the burying Errol Flynn, <laughs> but he does it in a really elegant way. Like Errol Flynn loved him. I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm kind of fascinated by guys that are in the world. And then like Jack Nicholson, he he kind of discovers him and fights for him. And then Jack is like his friend. It's it's like his one of his closest friends during these incredible downtimes where he almost has him in the Chinatown sequel. So yeah. um, this is somebody that had all of these layers and yet, I don't know, good, good kind of nailed it. And I, after reading about him after the fact, I, I just kind of like I was I'm in this real Bob Evans phase here now for a couple of <laughs> weeks is my point. Well, since you mentioned Ava Gardner, again, one of the great tempestuous romances ever with my guy, Frank Sinatra. Ava Gardner, one set of Sinatra, he only weighs 115 pounds, but 10 of those is his dick. Um, so Ava Gardner, also a very volatile woman. I mean, her and Frank together was amazing. So the fact that Evans, think about this. He was with Ali McGraw, who was with Steve McQueen, who was a huge heartthrob. Sinatra, who every woman is swooning over, he was with Ali McGraw. Like, that shows you the kind of playground that Robert Evans is dealing with here. So anyone's like, was he really a ladies' man? Well, yeah, he was hitting top-shelf home runs with these, with these starlets. And it makes me think of a couple things. One... And by the way, real quick on the Sinatra thing, doesn't isn't Ava in a movie later on, or is this another Sinatra wife where... In yeah, the yeah. book, Sinatra's like calling Evans going, hey, yeah. like she starts filming with me in November or I'm fucking divorcing her. And yes. Bob's like, hey, hey, you know, Frankie. <laughs> hey, you know, like, yeah, he's like, hey, <laughs> hey, man, we're just going to make the movie, man. Like, it's going to be fine. And then, you know, because he explains this all in the book, all the dialogue. And then yeah. Evans tells the wife, like, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And then she wasn't clear to start filming. And, and he filed Frank Sinatra filed divorce papers on his wife <laughs> that day. <laughs> Like reading these Hollywood stories, you're like, this shit is insane. Right. And normally you'd call BS on so many of these things. You go, that never happened that way. You're like, no, but actually with Robert Evans, like this is really, this stuff kind of pans out. And as you said, the guy was so handsome. It's always a shock that he was a producer. Like, why wasn't he Warren Beatty? Like he should have been Warren Beatty. He should have been in a hundred movies, should have made Oscars, writing, directing. But it's like, no, as an actor, did not have his talent. Thank you for to see what his real talent was, which was producing, bringing people together, being the master collaborator. And I think a lot of people, Ryan, think they can do this. Watch a movie, a rough cut, and then give you 10 things to, to nitpick. And probably seven of those are bang on. And three of those, if you don't do, it's not a big deal. And Evans could do that. That to me is amazing. That's a skill that he could watch an entire film of a rough draft and go, okay, here's what you got to change, this, this, and this. And on Chinatown, it's amazing. He watched it and goes, listen, the music's off like this music's horrible and he told Polanski he's like the, the score completely ruined the movie and Polanski's like well whatever you want to do I'm in Poland like I'm doing my thing you know what and he knocked on the door Jerry Goldsmith who was a legendary composer and he goes I need you to fix my movie and I'll give you whatever you want and here's the movie and we got three days to do it and Goldsmith watches like okay I know how to fix it gives that big brassy score it's perfect for trying to the opening credits so Evans was the guy and he was a huge fan of period music and how important that was to his story so I I think of that often that it's like one major mistake can completely crush a movie. And Evans was the guy that could just go, change that, change that, change that. Okay, now we're good. Okay, then what do you believe about the final edit of The Godfather? Because in the TV show, there's the push from the Colin Hanks character, which is basically the same every single scene where it's just like, He's I don't... Just, yeah. I just don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. There's a bit of it in the TV show. It's like the movie's going to get made. No, it's not. It's going to get made. It's not. And you're like, okay, all right, I got it. Like, especially when we already know that the movie actually gets made. Mm. But in the book, it feels like Evans is taking credit for the final edit. In the TV show, it feels like Coppola has this vision that's the artistic one that's the right one. But then the higher ups above Evans at Gulf and Western are saying, no, it can't be this long because we need more turnover. Uh, in the theaters. I know you've read all of it because whether it's the movie, the book, or the book about making it or watching the TV show or then the Evans biography, there's a lot of debate, it feels like, over that final cut and like who deserves credit for it. 
Yeah, I think that one goes to Coppola because I think Evans was definitely a fan of the artist and would push for the artist as much as possible. But he was ultimately a businessman. I mean, he's a studio head. And the simple mathematics of a week is a two-hour movie. It can air, you know, four times a day. If it's two hours and 50 minutes, we're losing a showing a day. Like, that's simple arithmetic. So to me, Evans, as strong as he was as an artist, I think ultimately he was a businessman. And Coppola was the one that pushed him and goes, no way, this has to be done this way. And Evans like, okay, I'll take care of it. But the suits above both those guys definitely didn't want it that way. So I go to Francis on that. We'll finish on this. Um, there's a moment in the book um, that is real in the TV show where he has to basically convince Gulf and Western executives in this boardroom, boardroom don't sell Paramount. You know, he basically has this open dialogue this this it's it actually it's a monologue of a few minutes and yeah. apparently that really happened right like he pitched it and at the end of his story at least in the book because again he's he's been dead now for a while in the book i think he wrote it like 20 years ago yeah um he somebody says to him like hey you're still just an actor and that's why you were able to trick everybody as a producer <laughs> <laughs> and the scene in the offer is him admitting as he does in the book that I kind of put the acting chops back to work yeah. and did this long and passion like the American people, man, they love, <laughs> they like stories. They want, they want to, they want to feel something. They want to feel love. They want to feel, and he's doing this whole deal. And he convinces them all like to keep Paramount. Cause it's basically, it feels like Paramount's going to be gone every other episode of the TV show. Yeah. But that was, I thought a great way to kind of describe him is that you're right. His roots were as an actor. Mm. People just didn't think he was good enough. He becomes a producer at a really young age. It doesn't make any sense. Paramount's last of the nine studios. And then he survives this. He puts together some of the American classics that we'll ever have in film. Yeah. And that people were like, you never actually stop being an actor. You just happen to be a producer the whole time. And maybe, I don't know. It's crazy because it wasn't just this producer. He was part of the scene. It felt like as much as you can have. Like when these guys are all coming over your house to hang out and they're, you're their friend. Yeah. Like Nicholson brings him the Academy Awards when he's down and out, like brings him to the awards. And he's like, I don't want to go to that. And he's like, no, no, you're coming. And it was like his friend announcing that through all the bullshit, you're back. Um, and I've gone back and watched now these YouTube videos of his interviews and everything. And they're they're crazy. I wish I had known more about him earlier on. I just didn't. I think actually that helped for your enjoyment of the show. Because this week you can say, wait, who is this character? This guy really stands up for me. I'm already bringing something to it. Go, okay, is he going to do an impression of Robert Evans? It may have been more enjoyable for you to kind of rediscover it backwards. Go, man, this guy's fascinating. Let me go dig in and dig in on this guy. But it's it's an amazing character. Like I said, it really could have gone into parody and I wish Evans could have seen it. It's amazing. He tried to have like a late act. I remember the movie Sliver with Sharon Stone and Billy Baldwin. I, I remember reading the Entertainment Weekly and I'm like, why am I interested in this movie? I'm like, oh, it's Robert Evans, a legendary producer. I'm like, like when you're 16, like, I don't know who this guy is. And I'm like, oh wait, he did all these movies before. They thought Sliver would be his big comeback. I'm like, well, Unfortunately, Sliver was not the great second act that Robert Evans was looking for, which famously William Baldwin was asked about kissing Sharon Stone. He said, thin lips, okay breast. But hey, they can't all be winners. Right, Bubby? <laughs> what a great transition into baseball. So let's do a few <laughs> minutes on this. Yeah, uh, We got to talk about Shohei Otani first. Since June 1st, uh, he's 6-1. and one. Uh, the Angels are six and one, excuse me, in his starts since June first. Yeah. They're six and twenty-six in games he doesn't start. Uh, his last six starts, thirty-nine and two-thirds, twenty hits, fifty-eight Ks. You throw in the games where he gets a couple RBIs. We're seeing stuff that hasn't been done since the Providence Grays. Like every now and then, I'll see like some Atani thing, and then it's like hasn't been done since 
you know, sidecar Jones doubled but for Orville uh, overall or old yeah, Orville, yeah. noodles, Han, all the, all the old <laughs> favorites for our, our radio show days. Right. I don't know what the question is with Otani. We get it. He's amazing. If you were in a different market, would it be different? I don't know. I know there's other discussions about it, which I think are canceled out by the fact that Mike Trout's American as it gets and nobody seems to care as well. So maybe it's an Angels thing or not. He's incredible. The team isn't again, which seems to be the same old story. Yeah, it's so frustrating. I, I called the Angels against your Red Sox May 4th. I remember talking with Joe Madden with Tom Verducci and Madden was in such a good mood. He's like, dude, we've got this. Like, this team, we're feeling good. They play defense great. We're starting pitching's figured out. We got Syndergaard and Detmers, and you know these guys can finally supplement Otani. And I'm like, okay, great. And then they went on that 14 game calamitous losing streak, and that was it. Cost Joe Madden his job, and they've, they've got too big a hole now to dig out of. But I think he's the best bargain in sports. That's one of the angles to me, which I find fascinating. He makes five million dollars a year, and if you look at him as a hitter, he's on pace for 37 home, home runs, 103 RBI. It's about 255, but his on base is decent. He walks enough. So he could be like J.D. Martinez. You could say he's a solid slugger. So 20, 23 million a year. As a pitcher, he's like Garrett Cole. Like, this is what his numbers are like. He has a 2.38 ERA this year. It was over three a year ago. So he's cut down his ERA by 0.8 from a year ago. He's striking up more guys. He walks less batters. So as a hitter, he's a little less than last year. But as a pitcher, he's appreciably better. And last year, he won the MVP. And the whole talk was judging him an MVP. And I'm like, well, Judges hit buck 86 in his last 17 games. He's kind of fallen off a little bit. And Jordan Alvarez is leading an OPS, OPS plus, lighting percentage. So to me, I'm like, I understand that people want to think of something different, but Otani's still the guy. But back to my point, if J.D. Martinez makes $23 million and Garrett Cole makes $36 million and Otani is both, well, he should be getting $60 million a year. Like, it's insane. And he only has a year and a half left on his deal. What are the Angels going to do? They're paying Trout $35, $36 million. Rendon, which is a horrific contract, 35, 36 million, 72 million for two guys. Otani's going to go, yeah, I want at least 40 million. I think that seems fair. I'm going to go from 5 million to 40 million. Three guys are going to be making $120 million. Like it's insane. And as you said, the Angels aren't anywhere close to the playoffs, but he's worth it because he's giving you so much in terms of advertising and revenue. And those stats you gave are great. This one I love too. Fifth pitcher to have at least 50 strikeouts and allow one or fewer earned runs over a five game span since 1913. So we're talking 120 years. Chris Sale, Clayton Kershaw, R.A. Dickey, Randy Johnson, all newish guys, but his consistency is amazing. And I just don't know how you can do that as a pitcher to look around at the rest of the staff and go, all these guys stink. Okay, I guess I'm the stopper again. Six straight starts, and like you said, he's been lights out. I don't know what it'll be like in New York. Like, say he ends up in New York or L.A. Uh, I remember reading articles about like Aaron Judge going, oh, can Aaron Judge save baseball? Or he'll be the face of baseball. And you think like, hey, great personality. Um, his features alone, just being that big, his stature, New York, the whole deal. And you're like, I don't know if that exists. I don't know if that player exists. Like if Mike Trout were in another market, Mike Trout is going to be the same guy. And if Otani's in another market, does it mean all of a sudden there's there, maybe there's more interest for that specific franchise? But I don't know that it has the carryover appeal the way, you know, say a top NBA player would have or, you know, the attraction of what were the home run races that everybody feels guilty about after the fact. So I yeah. see that article kind of pop up every six months or so about what it would mean, but it's going to be a crazy number. It's going to be a crazy number that he deserves when he's doing both things. It's a little bit different than Le'Veon Bell saying I should be paid the combination <laughs> of a top running back and wide receiver because I line up in the slot so many times. Uh, right. This is different. And so I don't, I don't know what that'll mean. I know what articles, I know what they'll say and what they'll ask. I just yeah. don't know if it's possible for one player to try to just get all these people paying attention to the sport again that haven't been for the last few years. Yeah, I think it's the kind of situation where I go, hey, 
if you're into it and you love it, cool. And if you're not, that's totally fine too. Like as you and I have talked about, baseball will always be a great sport and it'll always be a sport you and I both love, but it has become regionalized. Like where I live here in North Jersey, people are losing their minds. Yankees and Mets are both in first place. Mets just had a big series against the Braves. They took two or three. Uh, Subway series is coming up later this month. I mean, it's there's passion here. Obviously, you know about the Red Sox passion. Even Phillies fans around here are fired up about Schwarber ever since Girardi got fired. So I think on a national level, it's tough for those guys to cut through. But certainly in those markets, the TV money is still huge. The local money is big. I went to San Diego. I called the game there. And I'm like, man, the Padres are hopping. It's crazy. The Chargers leaving is the best thing that could have happened to the Padres. They were fourth in attendance last season. They're third in attendance this year. Like that's a team that's never won a World Series. And yet again, if you're the one town team and you really love your baseball in that area, it's great. Houston, you and I both know Texas football crazy, but they love the Astros right now. I mean, they're selling out left and right, and they've got passion about what could happen with that team, Astros, Yankees. So yeah, if you and I were doing a, a show back in the old days and I said, let's talk Jordan Alvarez, probably not going to cut through. But in Houston, they love that guy. Okay, so let's go to that then, because as it stands now, you know, Astros record, Yankees record, we're talking about the two best teams uh, with the Yankees being ahead of them, but the run differential is like an 80, 80 run difference here. Yeah. Uh, we know about the starters for the Yankees, um, their catcher, their lineup, the OP. I mean, it's just, there's, there's basically the Yankees feel like they accomplish everything that you would want. Clay Holmes at the back end, just unbelievable. Yeah. So, how much of a gap do you think is between the two teams? Like the record, not necessarily saying there's as big of a gap as maybe the way we talk about the two teams all year. It's funny how a week can change everything because a week ago it was, oh, Yankees are on the second best start ever in Yankees history. Only team better was the 98 Yankees, which won 114 games. They're on pace to win 119 games. Okay, got it. But then you look at the standings, you go, well, the Astros are only three games back in New York. So it's not like they've created so much distance between themselves and everybody else. Like within the rich history of the Yankees, yes, this is one of the best teams we've ever seen so far. But a big part is as health. You mentioned their starting staff. What I think is remarkable is just how healthy they've been. Now, Severino got hurt last night, left with tightness in his shoulder. I'm curious how that develops. But up until now, all their guys have been horses. Again, you've seen that with your Red Sox. Sale finally came back. But prior to that, Garrett Whitlock's been a stud for them. Either as a key piece in the pen or starter, he got injured. Evaldi hurt. I'm like, man, like all of a sudden you got Winkowski and all these rookies coming up. For the Yankees, you can slot them in. It's been Cole. It's been Severino. It's been Montgomery. It's been Nestor Cortez. Like all these guys have been able to deliver. So I am curious as far as their health goes just down the stretch. Can Judge stay healthy? He's the kind of guy that needs a day off here and there. But, but you're right about their depth. I mean, it's, it's pretty nuts when you look at their lineup. When Joey Gallo has been as bad as he's been, He's been a buck 64 hitter as a Yankee. It's been a year now in New York. That doesn't even matter. Like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. He's like our number nine hitter. Play some decent defense. He's okay with speed. Like, we might, we might DFM at some point, but it's okay. Like, Donaldson kind of left for great defensively. Rizzo's had an excellent year. He got an 850 OPS. Stanton and obviously Judge are all-stars. And Trevino's a backup all-star. So, their offense is obviously good. You mentioned Clay Holmes, who's been remarkable as their closer. But for Houston, their starters are amazing. Verlander is very much in the conversation for another Cy Young, which is a guy in the Virgin turning 40 is insane. Christian Javier is filthy. You've seen Luis Garcia's stuff. Framer Valdez is an all-star again. So those four stars, if you match it up Astros-Yankees, you might go, oh, kind of feels like a toss-up. Okay. Offensively, Alvarez is remarkable and just as good as Judge offensively. Kyle Tucker's in a great year. He's an all-star. Altuve's got an 850 OPS. He's an all-star again. I think the bullpen favors New York, particularly Holmes. Um but I think Astros-Yankees would be a very compelling ALCS. And it always happens, Ryan. You go, well, it's never going to be Yankees-Dodgers. That would just be too good, right? Too good for its own truth as far as big markets and what Fox would want, et cetera. There's always a team that surprises. I thought the Braves would get knocked out in the first round last year, and somehow they won the World Series. But I would be astonished. I really would if it's not Astros-Yankees in the ALCS. 
I know Holmes got roughed up against the Reds this week, uh, but that is the third time he's allowed an earned run in 40 appearances this year. And when yeah, you he watch gets Holmes four pitch, runs, which is crazy, and that's more he's given up all year. Like in his previous 40 appearances, he hadn't done that before. So he's allowed to have one flame out. The action on his pitches, I think, is where you're going to go is crazy. Like that, that backdoor slider, the way that thing's flying all over the place, I don't know how anybody hits that stuff. No, it's it's ridiculous watching him. Toronto, I thought, was probably the most exciting roster coming in. Uh, they fired their manager yesterday, Charlie Montoyo. Manoa is a stud. Like you start yeah. talking about some of the Cy Young stuff. I know he's gotten dinged a little bit recently in the last couple starts, but he's been incredible. But then when you look at the rest of the talent, like the quote was pretty clear. Like, hey, we're not playing to our talent level. I thought on paper, looking at that, and especially as the pitching sort of developed Manoa kind of last last season, I'm like, I think they have all the horses, despite not having the traditional payroll of the other teams in what's a ridiculous AL East. What went wrong with the Blue Jays? Yeah, just underachieving from their best players. I mean, Vlad Jr. has had a really good year. What's going to be an all-star? But Boba Shed, it's deceptive. Just because he was in the mix of the all-star birth, he hasn't had an all-star type season. He's drives in a lot of runs, which is great. But other than that, he's been a little bit of a disappointment. Teoscar Hernandez was hurt, hasn't played a ton, has been up and down. Lourdes Gurriel as well. They've had these surprises. Alejandro Kirk's been incredible. I mean, this guy with a body that only a mother can love. He's oh my god, they're catcher. If you yeah, watch he, him, you're like, if you again, if you're like getting into baseball in the second half of the season, and you look at Toronto's catcher, be like, who's this like double A emergency <laughs> guy? And you're like, no, he's actually mashing. Sean Casey, one of our MLB Network uh, analysts, his buddies with Shapiro and Atkins, close with those guys. A couple of years ago in Dunedin, Kirk comes out of the dugout. He's like, who's that? The bad boy? And they start laughing. They go, he's actually our best hitting prospect. He's like, what? There's no way. And he hits lasers all over the field. He's like, all right, this guy's pretty good. And Jansen was actually having a really good year before he got hurt. He's now back as well. So catching is a position which is really poor right now in baseball. Real Muto's got a sub-700 OPS. Sal Perez is in a bad year. The Jays have two catchers who are both outstanding right now, Kirk and Jansen. But Espinal's been good. He's stepped up. Again, it goes back to pitching, Ryan. You would have said on paper, hey, Gossman's a stud. This guy's top five. Last year in the signing voting in the NL, he comes to the American League. He replaces Robbie Ray. Great, right? Okay, Manoa, as you said, underrated, outstanding pitcher of what we've seen so far in his career. But then Ryu gets hurt, Kikuchi stinks, and you go, man, we, I think we only have two starters in this team now. Like, this guy's scary in a hurry. And Stripling's actually been very good stepping into that role, former starter with the Dodgers. But their bullpen's only got one guy, which is Romano, who, again, is great, but the rest of the bullpen has issues. So I think the management looked around and go, huh, every single team right now in the American League East is 500 or better. The Orioles have won 10 straight games, are in probably two games out of a wildcard spot. Great bullpen. Adley Rutschman, future face the franchise, love Trey Mancini, et cetera. So they looked around and go, um, the Mariners just swept us, and they've now caught us for the third and final wildcard spot. Should we just wait a couple more weeks and see if this turns around, or do we just gas Charlie now? Because that's the easiest move to make, and as you and I both said, they've been underachieving. So I'm amused by some of the people who are like, wow, I mean, the Jays, they're in the playoff spot. I'm like, bro, they're three games over 500. This is not what people were expecting. As you said, you and I both and many others said this could be a World Series team. They haven't performed like that so far. Okay, last one here, the Dodgers. Finding a way, no Walker Bueller, uh, missing other starters here and there. Clayton's turned it around. Like They just feel like they always have so many arms despite never feeling like they have their five guys that they expect. You know, like the, even the last couple of years, they'll be like, okay, here are their five. Holy shit. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they're missing this guy. Then you're like, well, who's this guy? You know, especially if you're like me, who's kind of in and out of it while basketball still goes, and I pick it up here for the rest of the season. Yeah. Uh, we know the payroll, we know the talent. They're never gonna, they're never gonna not be in the mix for somebody. Um, but to not have Walker, who I love as a starter, yeah, and and continue this role is really impressive. He's got a real cockiness about him. I remember I was talking with Rick Ankeel yesterday on the show, and it reminded me because we were talking about Adam Wainwright. And when you and I interviewed Wainwright, 
he came to ESPN Studios and you said to him at the end, hey, you got Harvey on Thursday. And he looked at us and goes, well, he's got me. <laughs> I've never forgot that. Like that, that <laughs> confidence about it. I've told this story to Mark Mulder. He's like, yeah, that's like Wayne. That, that's definitely like he's got an edge about him, that cockiness. I'm like, yeah, like, Ryan didn't say it negatively. He just goes, oh, you got Harvey on Thursday. He's like, he's got me. I'm like, yeah, damn right. And Walker Bueller's like that too. Like there's certain players like, well, I don't care what I'm pitching. Like they got to deal with me. And um, he's obviously a stud, Vanderbilt guy for the Dodgers. What's shocking to me is Tony Gonsolin has been their best starter. Now he got roughed up against the Cardinals yesterday. We did a 1.62 ERA going into yesterday. And you go, hey, listen, I get it when it's Bueller or it's Kershaw or it's Arias. But like when Tony Gonsolin is the best pitcher in the National League, that doesn't seem fair. I think Alcantara, by the way, should start in the All-Star game because he pitches more innings than anybody else, and he's a stud. But Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson have been great for the Dodgers, and nobody would have expected that. Kershaw was hurt for a little bit, still really effective, goes to the All-Star game. But their lineup's filthy. Like, Freeman's not an All-Star, but still great. Obviously, Justin and Trey Turner, Mookie Betts is back. Will Smith's a great catcher. Like, it, it gets a little unfair, a little gross when you look at how much talent they have. And again, I root for different stories. Like, I like seeing the Mets play well. I, Buck Showalter, you and I worked with the DSP, and I'm happy to see the impact he's had with the Mets. But I'm like, ultimately, Mets Dodgers is still going advantage LA. I'd love to see San Diego. I, I adore Tatis. Hopefully, he's back soon, make a push to the Padres. But who's betting against the Padres? Like, Padres and Dodgers head to head. LA's beat them 5-2. I mean, I, I, it's really going to be hard for a team to take down the Dodgers, ultimately, in the National League. I can't believe I would have known who Adam Wainwright had coming up in a couple of days back then. Because <laughs> I used to look at the pitching matchups for every series every morning. You said it so casually to him, too. Like, he was totally cool. And you you kind of just threw it off the cuff. Like, oh, you got, you got Harvey on Thursday. He's got me. <laughs> but you're right i do remember it he wasn't he wasn't a dick about it at all he just no. was, he was kind of being funny really yeah. more than anything but that was it it was the end of the, the interview all those little moments off the air and stuff like i'll just never forget like even you know when Schilling would come by and would talk to you about a pitcher just nobody would say a word yeah like he would just go oh man like he loved waka like he was yeah. just like, oh, if you see this guy. And then I remember like Harvey, we barely Harvey knew. he would go nuts for. Yeah. Uh, Harvey was barely on the radar. And then he would just be like, you know, whatever you think of Schilling. But it was just always one of those moments where you'd be like, okay, Schilling's talking about a starting pitcher that's sort of off the radar. And we were waiting to come back from commercial and you would just shut up because you would just go like, all right, here we go. Uh, you can see Adnan on MLB Network. Uh, subscribe to Cinephile. Check that out. He does awesome work on all this stuff. It's good to catch up again, man. Great to see you, man. The laughs off the air are always better than the laughs on the air. One thought for you, I got to say, your best tweet in recent memory as you and many others locked into Wimbledon, especially the men's final. I don't know how many people are watching that you and I have it on during the day, early rounds, et cetera. Obviously, if our boy Federer was there, which by the way, I've never been. I'm already pushing the wife. I said, if Roger plays next year, family trip, forget about South Carolina. We're going to London next year and I'll get an early round match. God forbid, Serena loses in the first round. I'll get a first round match for Federer at the All England Club. Hit up Weissman maybe for tickets, but regardless, your tweet, <laughs> men's, men's final, you said, Curious is the kind of guy that would be a real pain to call a foul on in pickup basketball. <laughs> the whole time that guy is talking to himself. And like, I think it's entertaining for maybe 10 minutes. Like the first 10 minutes I was watching the men's final, I go, hey, man, I love his passion. Yeah, he's temperamental, a little goofy. But hey, Mark Fidrich used to talk to himself on the man. Like, we all got quirks, right? There's all guys who are tempestive volatile. After an hour, I'm like, I don't know how Djokovic doesn't slam the ball down this guy's face. Even late in the match when he knew Djokovic was going to win, he's still gesturing to his box. How do you think his box feels? He's just constantly yelling and berating them. I'm all for new blood. But I'm like, dude, take it down a notch. I don't love it. <laughs> and 
you know, there have been times where it's pointed out, be like, oh, would you like Jimmy Connors? I was like, well, I was a little young for the Jimmy Connors show. And I can tell you, if you know me, I wouldn't go like that either. I didn't like the McEnroe stuff. I didn't care. I think it was like single digits still. I like McEnroe as an announcer. I think the problem is, is the third step for Curios. It's like, oh, so you're just going to, you're just going to let yourself get broken here. Like you've decided to stop competing. And he has too many moments like that. So yes, is it fun? Does it make you go, oh, Kyrgios is on? Let's see if he fucks up and goes crazy here. Like, I know that's not cool, but it's the reality of like the way entertainment works. And so I'll check it out. And then I felt like there was there was media arguments about like rooting for him, rooting against him that I didn't really necessarily want to get into. But I'll admit, like, because I was at the hotel, I was watching it. And then as I was getting ready to get some other stuff started, I watched him be interviewed and I felt bad for him. I felt bad for Curios because I do think that there's something with him that that is getting in his way. Everybody's talked about his talent forever. So I don't sit there and say, oh, this is awesome because I think it's a little ridiculous sometimes. I think the challenging part of it is so dumb with a lot of the players, not just Nick, and yeah. that you're just mad and you're like, yeah. all right, I'm going to challenge it. And you're like, yeah. cool. Like, at least it's fast. We don't sit there forever like at the end of an NBA game. Yeah. But I actually, it's the first time I felt some real sympathy for Curios after him talking because it, it felt like he was a totally different guy that if he could just get past whatever it is that gets in his way mentally during these games, the guy could probably have a couple of slams. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen for him because that third set, yeah. like, it's hard for me to like a player that goes up oh, third set. Things aren't going to my way. I'm going to start complaining more. I'm going to start yelling more. I'm going to start calling it out the, the chair rump. all these different things. You're like, you're about to get broken and lose the Wimbledon final. Like, do you not understand that right now? And I think he does, but he can't help himself. Yeah, I'm with you. Pity definitely is a feeling that I've had when you're watching that guy. But somebody said to me, why are you cheering for Curios? I said, well, it's real simple. I'm a Fed guy. And if Djokovic beats him, then he will pass better at all-time majors, which we can get to another debate another time. I don't think majors should be the only way you equate who the greatest of all time is. Not but, anymore now that Federer is being challenged, right? Correct. Now, now I'm saying, well, it's irrelevant. I'm like, in the past, Rod Laver <laughs> never never tried to win majors. Like he, The Australian Open wasn't even a major till the early 80s. Like It's interesting. If you ask Ben, I'm sure Ben Pelt would say this too. In the past, like Arnold Palmer, it'd still be considered by some as the greatest golfer of all time. Now we just go majors. We go, oh, well, Nicholas is 18, Tiger's 15. Well, there we go. So Nicholas is the best. I'm like, yeah, but somewhere, some guy's ranting saying Sam Snead is the greatest of all time. So similarly in tennis, it's tough to argue those eras. Labor, if you ask people of a certain era, go, dude, he was like Gretzky back in the day. He was incredible. I'm like, but he's not even mentioned now in the top five because you go, well, by the majors, who can't be him? Big three plus Sampras. That's it. I love this. Zag, are we anti-majors now? That's coming up next. <laughs> Two more before you get me go. I got to shut up. No, the rewatchable is great job. You know how much I, I got to credit Bill. What the timing? They just did him and Koppelman did misery. And then the next day, James Kahn dies. Just incredible timing that I happen to be listening to them. Waxing poetic about Jimmy Kahn. And misery is a great movie. I'm sure you and I love it. William Goldman's script. But I thought Bill did a really good job breaking that cop. But you know, I love fantasy. Fantasy is my soulmate. One time he said Scorsese is the most important filmmaker of the past 80 years. I go, this guy's incredible. And of course, Chris Ryan and the Pacino stuff is great. But we got to have you more on the rewatchables. Like you're there occasionally. You've popped in and out. Spotlight, you were great. Spotlight, especially on Ruffalo. I think you also did the program with those guys. But I, feel I did like the program. Did- I did Spotlight. Spotlight I did... Um- what was the Clooney, Jennifer Lope, Out of Sight? We yeah, did that with Bill Lawrence. <laughs> um, yeah. I did The Town. I think Vision Quest is the one that ended my run. Because <laughs> it got a little heated. I think PR people at the ringer were like, we don't need Rosillo getting into battles with Matthew Modine on Twitter. Modine was very <laughs> upset about me criticizing his lat pulldown form, which I kind of was like, you're fucking Matthew Modine. Who cares? Like. It, it was, uh, and and you lifted like a fucking spaz. It's not my fault. 
Like, think of how irrelevant Matthew Modine is now. Like, how many? No, people- I, I see. I think he is relevant. He's a street. He was in Stranger Things. Right. Like, so I'm, I'm actually arguing for him. But <laughs> his form wasn't very good, and then I don't know. He, he, he wasn't thrilled about it on Twitter. So I don't know. So that, I, I don't know. Okay. To I would like you more on the rewatchables. That's my, my volley for you. And. Raptors I think this is about you trying to get on the rewatchables because I only have you at nine <laughs> shout outs on today. I kept track of them. We got yeah. four name shout outs within 30 seconds. I was like, all right, I'm going to keep no, track and see true. if we get that's to 30. No, we had we had four and then we we had a massive gap, but we got to nine at the end. So I made sure I had Weissman at the end. Uh, do, the Raptors, do the Raptors get to rent? I wouldn't rule it out. You're not optimistic. You think he stays with the Nets? just think he's a problematic guy to trade for because even with the contract you got to make sure he's happy and i don't i don't want to turn this into an anti-toronto thing um because we know that that's, already did that right right <laughs> although i'd like to also point out it seemed like there was a ton of blue checks from canada shitting all over this country during covid because they were <laughs> acting like the comparing one country with 300 million more people was yeah. as easy to execute the same plan so i don't know is it okay for me to point that part out <laughs> I, uh, I do get annoyed at Canadians, I, and I won't mention this. So I'll tell you on fair, but there's somebody who I follow who's tweeted on Canada Day, so proud to be from a country with universal health care and welcomes immigrants and treated the COVID crisis so well. And I wanted to say, as a non-American, but someone who probably lives here, well, then why don't you go back to Canada? Like I, I, never, like I never understand people crapping on the country in which they live. So on the 4th of July, I proudly tweeted, everyone knows I'm a proud Canadian, but I am proud to live in this country for a dozen years. My wife's American. My kids are American. I'm going to go check out some U.S. Civil War history. Hey, man, and we almost deported it. you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of that story, as you know, is Mark Rose said, you have to leave tonight, but your family can stay. Like, what? Because you guys all have to go. Like, well, my wife's American. Like, okay, well, she can stay, but you have to leave. First, do the shift, though. Do baseball tonight, and then first thing tomorrow morning, you can leave. Like, okay. So this isn't an immediate deportation. Finish your shift if you don't mind. We couldn't cover you. Do it tomorrow morning. No problem. Do baseball tonight, and then we're going to have you go back to Canada. (laughs) Maybe you can do some stuff first with TSM. We'll see how it goes. Actually, Mike and Mike, we got, could you you come in at eight? (laughs) They're taping something. All right. Thanks, man. Good to see you, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate, is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Before we get to life advice, I have a quick thing. uh, Just some observations from Vegas Summer League that I wanted to touch on here. Uh, One is... 
after everything kind of settled down with Donovan Mitchell, let's pick back up again. Uh, if the Knicks get him, great. Does he win you a championship? No. Uh, is his stock probably the lowest it's been since he's been in the league? Yeah. Uh, but he's a really good player. Is he guaranteed top 10 guy? Does he guarantee you anything? No. But this is the whole point of the Knicks and some of the staffing and some of the stuff they were always trying to do, whether you're hearing the Booker rumors years ago or Carl Anthony Towns. And and then finally, if they end up with a Donovan Mitchell, it makes sense. And I'm not saying like it's a lock because it seems really complicated, especially after the Gobert deal and, and people saying, okay, well, that means it should be. I saw Bobby Marks have something where it was like five picks and three swaps. So eight picks coming back. I don't, you know, again, I don't know that that's going to happen. But um, Mitchell... Despite some of my frustrations with him, I still really like him as a player. And if you can add that to your team, whoever you are, I think that that's a win. I do. Because I, I really think he's that dynamic when things are right. Uh, and then the other side of Utah, with Gobert, you're probably winning close to 50-plus games. I don't know what you'd be in the playoffs without him because he's such a regular season impact player. Now, I don't know if they are in the top eight. Probably not. Again, somebody's not going to be healthy. There will be a couple teams that have some injury questions. So maybe Conley, Bogdanovich, and Mitchell and, and everything else, maybe it's enough to at least to be competitive because I do think Mitchell is good enough to maybe get you to 500. But if you want to just say, hey, what's the point? We've already tried that and we're going in the wrong direction. And you think to yourself, should we get into the Wem Bayama thing where you're like, all right, let's do this? Which I also think like a sneaky part of, of the whole part of Utah, if they were to end up with like the number one pick, be like, hey, we ended up with a foreign guy. And maybe he's going to be a little pro-Utah or a little bit less anti-Utah than somebody who's an American guy. Uh, I think these are all things you would have to factor in. One thing that may not seem relevant, but I thought was. So I was in Vegas for four nights. I stayed at the Wynn. And, um, you know, there's two different gyms. <laughs> like, how oh, cool, you're telling us a gym story. Awesome, dude. Um, there's two different gyms in the facility. And the one that I would use is usually depending on which team was where, you know, because teams were using both of the gyms, the the win side that I would use, I just liked. I liked it a little bit better. Um, but the Memphis Grizzlies as a team would use it. Now, this gym usually would have in the morning all sorts of front office people. You're running to people left and right. Uh, shout out to the Cavs on one of the members of the Chicago Bulls front office. Seems like he's really working on those. But the Grizzlies would have their equipment guys in um, and they're, they're strength and conditioning guys, maybe not all the equipment guys. I think you understand what I'm saying. All the different trainers, maybe three or four different guys. And there'd be between five or seven players, including like a couple that make real money and play minutes that'd be in this room. And there is something about that team, man. And I thought of it last year and just how much they seem to like each other. I saw it even with their summer league stuff with how much energy they have. Uh, they were nice to everybody in the gym. And this may seem so stupid and not important, but I actually expected the opposite. Like your NBA players, there's housewives kind of trying to get it to a dumbbell or, or using that equipment. Are you done? And these guys set up their deal and were so friendly. They were getting after it. They were like supportive of each other, but they also weren't dicks to people because hey, I'm an NBA guy and I'm in this public gym and I can just kind of use up this whole space and do whatever I want. They weren't like that at all. And it, I don't know, maybe maybe it's because I didn't expect that just from not specifically them, but any NBA team. I was so impressed. And it's this constant thing with the Memphis Grizzlies where I find myself going, this team seems to have this personality that is so rare, uh, especially with younger guys usually trying to jockey for position. And maybe, you know, there's an expiration date on it at some point where a player goes, all right, you know, maybe now I'm not enjoying this that much. But I at least thought it was worth pointing out because I was just really impressed. I was in there, like, I think, three straight days with that same group. And I was watching the work that they were putting in. 
I was watching how everybody was like determined to just figure out the task. You know, it wasn't a very big room. Let's make the most of this. And the trainers are doing a great job with it. I just kept watching how these guys were interacting with each other. And I was just, I think like it's just an extension of everything that I, I think of the Grizzlies and that this is a team that gets it, especially in an era where it seems like all of the best players are incredibly unhappy. Uh, they remind us of their unhappiness all the time. Sometimes there's sympathy from us. I think a lot of times there isn't, which is also understandable. But here's an NBA team that is on the rise, that had a great regular season, injuries maybe derail their playoff hopes, uh, and a collection of personalities that all seem to be on the right page. Not to say that you know there aren't going to be some missteps or you know some challenges for them because that happens with every organization, but just something I left Vegas going, man, I'm impressed with those guys. So there you go. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Life advice is rr at gmail.com. Got a couple follow-ups here. A uh, little housekeeping. Uh, congrats to the people that did figure out that the last life advice that we gave out on Tuesday when I gave the example of the guy that was delivering food and sleeping with older women, that was Patrick Dempsey, uh, lover boy, 1989. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people did get that. Did get that one. Do you like doing that to us? Is that fun for you? Or <laughs> You know, Srudy doesn't like old movies. I'm just not into... I, I probably, oh, yeah. I probably wouldn't have came across that movie by my own self. Um, I just thought it was a cheap shot or something like that. A little salt. That's fine. Start, did start you keep... do that, like, anticipating that we would get it, or did you think that neither of us it would just go right over our heads? I knew there was no way you guys were going to get it. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a good chance if a movie was made in the 80s, like, there's, like, a 99% chance I have not heard of it or certainly seen it. It's a great movie. I mean, Can't Buy Me Love, Lover Boy, Back to Back, Patrick Dempsey, just heat zone. All right. I don't know. He might have had another one in there in between. Yeah, all right. Totally. I get it, man. Maybe not fair. Maybe <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm cool with it. No, good job by you, dude. Good job by you. <laughs> but I'm telling you, like, I didn't do it going, ooh, I'm going to get Kyle. He's never going to get this. That wasn't that wasn't the point. I did it once before or maybe twice, I think, at ESPN. So I'm averaging, I think, one every two years. And the best one was the Born Ultimatum one, where to be entirely transparent, the TV-only segments that we did at the end of the hour for SVP and Rosillo and then Rosillo Canel, they didn't always go great. Um, I would say it was one of the least successful segments in the history of ESPN, the amount of times we had a plan and then the execution of that plan. So it went so bad. I don't know how many meetings I had about it. And then finally, like somebody's solution was, well, maybe we'll just take you off TV, which I used to always love and be like, hey, this TV only segment like kind of keeps getting fucked up every single time. And it's super embarrassing. And then you're just sort of on the air for like two and a half minutes trying to fill and a lesser version, I would say, like me at the beginning of my career, that would have been the most horrifying thing ever. And luckily, you know, I'd been around doing it enough, getting your reps in. But then you would go to management and be like, hey, can we figure out something here? And then management would be like, why don't we just take you off TV? You know, that was like when we did the Fort Worth. Uh, Van Pelt and I did a week mm. of shows. We decided to do like a week of every single show. We we're just going to blow out Sundance Square. Shout out to ECU. That's where that started. And everybody was freezing to death. And they had like, instead of a heater, they had a smoker behind the set. So not only were we cold, we were getting slowly barbecued <laughs> and we stunk. And then we were covered with blankets and guys like faces were dripping. And then a couple other shows got done inside, 
you know, for the simulcast because they would just move the equipment around. And I remember I was like, hey, is there anything we could we could do here? And then the, then a the guy was like, well, you could just go home. You go back to Bristol. <laughs> and I went, cool. All right. That's cool. <laughs> You're right. I could do that. Uh, that's fucking cool. Maybe I should just quit. Just change careers, too, I guess, if you wanted to. <laughs> and then one guy who had no fucking business talking to me the way he did said, because that's just the way it works, right? If it's a higher up, I realize like you could talk to me a certain way. And if you're at another level, then I'm probably not going to be thrilled with the way you're talking to me. I mean, that's just life. Sorry. And he like really got into it. He's like that other shows out there and whatever. And then you're, you know, you wanted to be on the, it just, I was like, wait, wait, you can back off. And, um, the point was, I was like, we're on for three hours, man. We're on for three hours straight. So I don't hear about some 60-minute or 30-minute fucking show going out there and being cold. We're there for three hours instead of heaters. You got, you know. A Traeger? Yeah, we got a Traeger <laughs> behind us on full blast. Good job. Good job. So, all right. Um, anyway. All right. Rant over. Yeah, there you not, go. Not quite over, though. It's not quite over. Uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. But wait, there's No, because I didn't <laughs> arrive at the point yet. So I know it's the payoff's yeah. going to be huge. So. The reason I did a Born Ultimatum movie thing where I pretended it was my friend was I was so pissed. I was so pissed because it was another TV-only segment where right in your ear, you're like, five, four, three. We don't have the video. We don't have Phil. Phil. <laughs> and you're like, hey, we're back. <laughs> the number of times that happened where it was like, okay, is this the plan? All right, we're going to do this. Like the all-timers, the 2016 LeBron uh, block on Iguodala. And we're like, hey, let's do it. They're like, let's play the Iguodala <laughs> block. And they played like a block from the second quarter. And we were just out there. Uh, going, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so uh, that one day, I just internally, instead of snapping outwardly, I just internally was like, okay. And then for whatever reason, I just started saying that I had this friend that was into the outdoors and these wolves are chasing them. You know, that that turned into a full recap of the born. I think if there's a better version of that in there, I'd love to get that audio one day, but I'm, I'm sure the whoever, archives after. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. After that rant, there's YouTube. probably not a ton of people that worked on the show. It was like, let's, let's help that asshole. Um, <laughs> just didn't work, you man. Know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. The results weren't great. Okay. The results here are great. Let's get positive quickly. One year follow up. Remember the guy that was driving to Mexico for a date? That was a year ago. Mm, wow. Huh? Oh, my God. Time flies when you have fun. That. Am I right? I know. When you're driving to Mexico. Hey guys, one year ago, uh, yet July 22nd, 2021 episode, that was with Dan Patrick. Uh, you read my email about crossing over to Mexico for a day. I'd already gone on the first date when I wrote the email, but the fear of border patrol made me question everything. I asked you guys whether I should continue doing this. Uh, the three of you gave me different types of advice. Surdy, how long have you been on the show? Uh, over a year. So I remember, it May, this, yeah. May of last year? No, I think it was, Mar it was March, I want to say. March? So I, I, I was involved, but I don't remember exactly the advice I gave on this. Do you guys? I think I said stay away from Border Patrol. I think that's what I said. But now I think that was probably closer well, to what I would give myself advice instead of this guy. So I hope, what did he do? Well, he has the recap for us. So we oh, don't need perfect. to do that. All right, Ryan looked closely at both sides of the argument. Well, there you this, go. Does sound like something I would do. Pros and cons, but ultimately leaned on the side of dissuading me. I do remember that. I just felt like, really? You're already telling us you feel uncomfortable. We did get some heat, some blowback on this one. Very low number of people, but it was kind of like, hey, I did this and it worked out. And it was like, okay, all right, that's great. It worked out for you. I don't know. Uh, 
Kyle was very much against all of it, but was much more concerned about the door panels of my car being ripped out than actually my well-being. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> I do remember that. Steve completely zagged and suggested. I think that's why we did. We got a little bit of shit for that one, too. Um, Steve completely zagged and suggested I move to Mexico for a couple of years to explore and find myself <laughs> while I continue to date her. Steve, you crazy <laughs> son of a bitch. That doesn't sound like Steve. If I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do that. But if I remember, he, you know, he was, you know, within, I thought he could work remotely or something. There was like a reason that he was flexible and he like could live. He said he could live down there. I thought I was like, yeah, just go check out Mexico for a little bit. Why not? Everybody was working remotely still. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't, that sounds like pre father Saruti. Now <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't tell my father. daughter to go live yeah. in Mexico for a couple of years yeah. and just try it out. But Hey, you know, as a uh, update, he has an update for us. Things worked out. Awesome. By the time I heard the episode, I was already on my way to date. Number two, I learned that instead of driving, you can park your car and walk in and out of Mexico. Tijuana much Bridge. less searching. Yeah. Much less searching and scrutiny after a few dates. What is the Tijuana bridge all about? I just think I think you can walk across the Tijuana Bridge, obviously. I mean, I think at Kenny Powers, he does it, too, doesn't he? Um, you and, haven't been to Tijuana? You know, I just thought it's one of those things that sounds so great. And then it's just like, maybe I'm not the guy to to do it. Like, my, it's just my first time. I know what I was worried about. And I don't know, like, the right crew to go with. And I don't know. I just get worried about what will happen. All fair points. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, too, have never been to Tijuana. Uh, all right. So things worked out. He was on his way to number two. He's walking over now. Uh, after a few dates, we made things official and it's been a wonderful year together. We've traveled, eaten amazing Mexican food. I've learned a bit of Spanish too. We've even bonded over some episodes of life advice and border patrol doesn't give me a hard time anymore. Things are looking up and there's even talk of a long-term future together. Hopefully, I hope she knows that doesn't listen to this episode. She's like, Hey, this has been fun, but come on, dude. Um, (laughs) Hopefully the next time I ask her advice, it's about the wedding party, home renovations, or finances. He doesn't mention HOA in here, but maybe that could happen too. Uh, but it won't be about dating or how to reassemble the door panels of my car. Thanks for reading. There's a picture of him here. I got to tell you, this is a good-looking couple. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's awesome. Good-looking couple. for you. Love when okay. it works out. Um, can I segue into a burrito thing, or does it feel like I should do one in between? <laughs> I don't know what we can do anymore. All right. Let's go with this bartender <laughs> thing. Hello, gentlemen. 61220, uh, about 25 pounds overweight. So fuck all the working out credentials. I don't even know why people include those, but I feel obligated. I don't know really why it happened either. Shout out to Dan Patrick Show. Two shout outs. Same pod. Uh, I used to live with my best friend since the second grade. Wow. Did you move in at seven? Yeah, what? Oh, no, they were friends. I was going to say, you don't meet a lot of second graders that get an apartment together. All right. Um, and at the time, it was him and his girlfriend of four years. Okay. All right. So he little little threesome housing situation. Mm-hmm. Not the movie. I lived with both of them for three years without any issues aside from normal, normal living with a couple's bullshit. Uh, I've since moved into my own place and been living here going on three years. About a year and a half ago, I was working out a lot, going to the bridge uh, alongside downtown, running four or five days a week. Naturally, I was way more confident, started looking better, feeling better, and women were taking notice. Hello. One drunken night, my friend's girlfriend came with me in my house, and uh, we did something we shouldn't have done and have been living with the secret ever since. They have since broken up 
and are working on moving into other living situations. Only problem is that he asked me to get a house with him in February once. Uh, both our leases are out. I've declined a few times, but every time he drinks, he asks me about moving and getting a place together over and over again. Dude, we should just do it. We started. Remember second grade? Um, obviously, I shouldn't get a place with him, but is there any good way to let him know about this thing that happened uh, with his then girlfriend maybe years down the road? Or should I just bury this dark secret and take it to my fucking grave and let it haunt me forever? Well, yeah. yeah I mean, I don't know. I just think about the other guy all the time. You know what I mean? Like, imagine you're super fired up and then other people know about it. I know this is kind of a shitty way to look at it, but how many other people know? You know, because there's a, like I've mentioned before, that I think most people are going to have something like this happen to them at some point if you're the boyfriend in this situation, not the newly jacked runner. Um, or at the time was then jacked <laughs> and now. Is, I guess you could say, hey, you're overweight, so you're not going to sleep with his next girlfriend, right? So maybe you could move in together. Uh, that'd be one way to look at it. But the reason it bothered me so much when it happened to me was that everybody knew about it and it went on for a really long time. And I then had to have all these people be like, dude, I just didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do. And you're like, yep. Okay. That makes me feel like an asshole. Um, it's not a great feeling. So if you want to really worry about that other person, but I also understood why certain people weren't going to tell me. So I had to chalk it up to just a big L in the game. So if no one else knows you know, they're not together. I mean, this is, I, there's no real good answer for this thing. You're saying it haunts you. So that's kind of cool that you care enough because other people are so terrible. That they'll just be like, I don't even care. I don't even think about it. Like, yeah, man, let's split it up. I want the better parking spot. Maybe you could do little things like that. Move in together and be like, yeah, you can have the carport. That's cool. I'll park outside. You know, <laughs> yeah. slowly become a sidekick. Right. For the right. rest what's of his life. <laughs> what's the square footage of that bedroom? 315 versus 325. You uh, can take the bigger one. No extra problem. charge. Yeah. yeah, you just do like little secret things for them all the time because you feel all this guilt. And <laughs> no. so maybe that's the way you get past it. I I just don't really have, I'd love to say, hey, you need to tell them. It's been second grade, dude. But I'm not going to tell you to do that. So Stuff it down, bottle it up. Just be sad yeah. for a little while. This is crazy. Yeah, don't, what? No, just no. And don't move in with them either. I mean, things you said you've been living by yourself for a couple of years and it's been great. Like you don't have to backtrack either. I think uh, healthy distance, continue to be friends and don't tell them the secret to him or anyone else. And hopefully she doesn't tell her friends. That, that this tell happened. her, t tell them you sleepwalk and you get, no, <laughs> just be like, I could crawl into bed with you one night. You won't even know. Like I just rather live alone. Yeah, I guess you have to assess the situation, though. Like, as Kyle just said, is she is she going to spill the beans on this? Like, is she going to tell other people? Because that's that would worry me. Um, but if you don't think she will and you guys just kind of go your separate ways, you you kind of hit the jackpot here. Because, like, if you got if they got end up getting married, then then I mean, you think you feel bad now. Like, then that, you're going to feel even worse if that happens. So you, you, you kind of it's kind of the best case scenario in this situation. Yeah, I don't think there's much to add on this one. Like, it, it doesn't matter. You weren't seeing her. It was a one off. You were hot then. Yeah, you feel bad uh, about it. Like, you know, you're beating yeah. yourself up over it. Like, you're, you seem like a decent dude, you know? Yeah. Who, who's it helping? The, the easiest thing here is, right, like, to say, I'm not, I'm, I'm done having roommates, right? Like, that's the easiest thing to, that's just a personal choice. It's like, that's the, that's the, the way I chose to live now. So I know that it'd be cool for you. I'm just out of the roommate phase. Unless he has yeah. a roommate right now, which I don't, he didn't sound like he did. <laughs> I don't think it sounded no, he said like he, he did. Yeah, I think yeah. He, no, he got his own pot. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Just not going back. That's all. Okay, let's get to the Chipotle one here again. Uh, this is not the same. A lot of people on that sauce controversy still. 
Um, they factor it into the cost. Not if everyone takes a bottle. The burrito would cost $3 more. All right. Uh, 62250, leave out my name. You can refer to me as Big Hoss. Mm, Gladly. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll say it in my like head. That. I'll say it in my <laughs> head, pal. <laughs> uh, all right hey guys long time listener um i recently started a new job real estate consulting firm last week it was my first big pay raise in addition to getting the chance to shoulder more responsibility so i'm very grateful that's awesome so far through my first week everything's been great today i went to chipotle for lunch when our hr rep let's call her stacy sees me waiting to pick up my order in addition to being the general HR rep for the company, Stacy's also the person who twice interviewed me and ultimately hired me. For context, I had ordered uh, for pickup through the app, and she had opted to simply hop in line and order at the restaurant. As Stacy makes her way through the line, she receives her food before me. If you know me, uh, I'm never going to complain to an hourly employee at Chipotle who's clearly already swamped with a huge line and no doubt many more pickup orders uh, that I didn't get my food right away. However, Stacy takes it upon herself to say very rudely to the cashier, excuse me, but my friend ordered ahead and still had his gut his food. Why is that? What's taking so long? I'm mortified for a few reasons. One being that I've only worked at this company for three days, so I'm already unsure what to say to Stacy. Secondly, I found it weird that she complained on my behalf when I was fine, waiting quietly and politely. Again, considering how many people were there and given that the cashier was clearly swamped at the moment. Lastly, and more importantly, when I checked my app to confirm the order, I realized that I had ordered to the wrong Chipotle. Mm. <laughs> Big yikes from Big Hoss. <laughs> <laughs> Later, when I returned to the office, I told my manager what had happened, and they said, Stacy has done this sort of thing before and is known to be yeah, overly yeah. assertive. Definitely. People know about Stacy when you go to Chipotle or other food venues. When Stacy stopped by my desk to ask about my order, I explained that it was my mistake and not Chipotle's and that the reason I didn't get my food was because I ordered at the wrong place. She shrugged it off and said, no worries. I get Chipotle two, three times a week for lunch, so we'll just go another time together to make sure you get it. My question is, how do I decline Stacy if she has for lunch in the future? I'm not a passive person. I consider myself unafraid of confrontation, but it's an entirely different situation when I'm so new at the company and Stacy is technically my superior. Let me know what you think. Is uh, HR really your superior? Let's be honest. I got to tell you, that was the first thing I thought. Of. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, the HR people out there. Um, I feel like I know Stacy. I've known her her whole life. Oh my god! I know. I know exactly who she is. Uh, I know a Stacy whose name is Stacy. <laughs> like that's how many there are. <laughs> so what does Big Hoss do here, guys? Don't go to lunch with Stacy. I mean, and you could have also, I mean, probably Im immediately apologized after she got her order and left. Probably like, yeah, sorry about that. And also totally sent it to the wrong thing. I'm sure that happens to everyone. So, sorry. You're, I think your your hands are clean. Even if you come back there, just don't let her speak for you. Like, you know, even if you, even if you have to be there in the same place at the same time, I mean, people can tell who's cool and who's not. And if you're cool, like this, none of this stinks going to be on you. Yeah, like always be like five minutes late when you're when you're going to Chipotle with her. Just get in line without me. I'll order after. Don't worry about it. Um, no, Stacy's going to want your order though. She's going to yeah, want your order. She's like, she's, I'm going to take care of this. She's real she's, hardo, real proactive in that sense. Yeah, she sounds I, like she points over the glass. No, no, the corn. <laughs> <laughs> Very like, accurate. Right. Oh, so when you said corn, I was going in to go to something else that you yeah. needed to point out the corn part and stick your tentacles over 
the glass. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is really, you're going to be fine here. I think Kyle made a great point that if you're worried about the Chipotle people from now on and you having like a damaged rep in there, they'll probably know the deal. Um, it's weird to me to think that she, like, is there something about you where she felt like she had to be so assertive on your behalf? Uh, or is this the way that she always is? As you explained, you talked to somebody else about it and they said, yeah, she's kind of like this. So I think all things, all the factors here are on your side. Um, and it could be she just wanted to take you to lunch or go with you to lunch because it's your first week. She interviewed you twice, as you said. I don't think you're going to be getting lunch with the HR person mm -hmm. all the time anyway. It could be just, hey, new guys here. Let me do something nice so he's not eating lunch by himself. But uh, there's plenty of ways. I mean, you just run through a list of things. Oh, I'm swamped. I got I got you know, the printers acting up, you know, tons of office stuff that you can figure out a way to get out of any future lunch. I would. I would not immediately cut off lunches forever with her, though. I would, I would maybe play the game a little bit if you're worried about that part of it. Um, but you know, I don't know that I would tell on her too to other no. people like my first week. So Definitely. maybe you're con confiding in somebody that you trust a lot or whatever. But I would, I would be a little cautious with that new guy there going fucks up with Stacy at Chipotle, man. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, yeah, like if the office people are like Stacy's like that. The Chipotle people are like, yeah, she comes in Wednesdays and Fridays. Same, Two to same three every days. Yeah. Sneaking in as Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. So everybody's on the same page here. You're just a new guy. You'll, you'll figure it out. Don't worry. All right. Good luck with that. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. As always, uh, we're going to do a couple taped ones next week. The book club uh, episodes. We got two books that we did. The Led Zeppelin book and our first Civil War American history um, and we're going to do a life advice episode. So, uh, there you go.